Well, welcome everyone. It's in a really heartfelt welcome to the new people. Probably people who feel like old timers with retreats, and it's like first love. You know, when we see people on their first retreat, we remember our first retreat <laughs> and how wonderful and traumatic and deep and terrible and beautiful it was. So it's really great to have the old-timers and the new-timers on retreat. And now that we've been here, who knows how many times, but you know, maybe close to 30 times we've done these retreats at Holy Spirit, quite a few times now. It really is a bit of a spiritual home for us, a homecoming to be here. So it's good to let that in as much as we can. And if it is uh, your first retreat or if it is really challenging for you to be here, even if you're an old-timer at any point, you know, we have, uh, we have a particular structure and uh, that noble silence that Jen talked about, that's part of it. But another piece of the structure is compassion and, you know, that we're all in this together. So don't be shy about getting the support you need, talking to me, connecting with Jen, connecting with any of the staff, the kitchen staff, or Jen or myself, um, to get what you need or just to, you know, feel like there's another human being. Because the other retreatants, they're going to be sort of in their own practice space. So we can't really rely on them to be our friend or to sort of demonstrate humanity as we'd expect a normal person to do. But the staff, we can do that. (laughs) And we've been there, and so we know what it's like and how uh, the different places our mind can be on retreat. So don't be, don't feel like you're isolated even though, you know, most of the other retreatants will be in their retreat space and uh, won't be able to show up for you as a friend in the way that uh, would happen at a different place. One of the things that's often really powerful here on retreats because we're not talking, we're not socializing much, um, we're not talking much, and we're not really socializing at all. But we do have small groups once a day. So people are encouraged to attend those small groups. For those of you who've been on a number of retreats and you're feeling like it would be better not to come to the small groups, that's okay. Be good to leave me a note just so I know that you're doing okay. but don't feel like you have to come to the small groups if you've been on retreats before. But otherwise, I, it's generally a good idea to come to the small group, and it's a chance to hear from other people, to share your practice with the group, and there's a real sense of normalizing the retreat experience and feeling like... Um, we're in this stream of so many men and women throughout history who have retreated from their duties and responsibilities in order to 
deepen their experience, to sensitize the heart to the way it is, to open up. And uh, sometimes a beautiful road, sometimes a bumpy road. So it's really great to hear different people sharing about what's happening. I'll give more sort of nuts and bolts uh, tomorrow morning um, about the small group meetings, uh, the one-on-one meetings rather, but I'll say a little bit about a theme for this weekend's practice, and then uh, we'll do the traditional three refuges and five precepts, this chant that people have been doing for the last couple hundred, couple thousand of year, thousands of years at the beginning of retreat practice, or just generally when they, when people gather um, and commit to this path of awakening. It's really a commitment to safety. So I want to talk about that safety for a little bit tonight, for maybe 15 or 20 minutes. And in particular, I'd like to empower us to uh, inspire us, you know, inspire myself, inspire everybody about this possibility of happiness and really grounding our time here and beyond that, grounding our life in this very appropriate desire to be happy. Often in Buddhism we hear a lot about suffering and stress and we often are hearing about the different conditioned patterns of the mind that are disturbing, that get us into trouble, that lead us into tight and narrow places. So it's also really important, equally important, to remember that not only is it appropriate to desire to be happy, but to really hold that it's possible to be happy and that this happiness, this wish for happiness, in a way is a beautiful and unifying aspect of our hearts. Not just for human beings. I think this is what we recognize when we see other creatures even. You know, there is such a familiarity when you're sort of observing a squirrel or a bird or a cat or a dog or another human being. And I think a lot of that is we recognize in each other this thing we share, which is, may I be happy, may I be safe. We're recognizing the tenuousness of our lives and that this wish to be happy is actually a beautiful thing. Now, I know it can get neurotic, but it gets neurotic not... The wish to be happy isn't itself neurotic. What gets neurotic is when uh, we get frightened or we get greedy. So it's more about the means to becoming happy that causes problems, not the actual desire to be happy. 
So as many times during the retreat as feels appropriate, when you're confused, like why did I sign up for this retreat, or why do we pay attention to the breath, or pay attention to the body, why can't we talk to each other, just start all over by coming back to the present moment, this body, this mind, and recognizing this very real, authentic truth in the heart. I care about this life. I'm interested in being happy. Not theoretically happy, not happy later. I'm interested in being happy now. The possibility of being happy, being free now. It's such a grounding force to connect with. And I don't know if we always realize it, but we're connecting to some deep intuition that it's possible. We can't feel that wish to be happy unless somehow, on some level at least, the heart is able to recognize that that's a reasonable, you know, that's a reasonable desire to be free, to be at ease to be happy, to feel whole, complete, released. It's not, you know, sometimes when we have uh, idealistic notions or, you know, we can kind of sense like how, what a stretch it is. I mean, that's actually a nice phrase we have. Oh, well, that's a stretch. It's a but we actually energetically feel it, like, you know, because it's not grounded in what's true here and now. So I think just to come back to that, we're intuiting that it's here and now, that it's available here and now. One of the, my favorite, and I think one of the better introductions Manual of the Spiritual Life was written by Jack Kornfield a number of years ago now. A Path with Heart seems to hold up pretty well. Now, I think the introduction, I think I saw that it was written, at least the introduction was written in 92. This is his first chapter, which he titles, Did I Love Well? Even the most exalted states and the most exceptional spiritual accomplishments are unimportant if we cannot be happy in the most basic and ordinary ways. If we cannot touch one another and the life we have been given with our hearts. In undertaking a spiritual life, what matters is simple. We must make certain that our path is connected with our heart. It's a word we use a lot. So just remind us that connected with our heart isn't meant to be, again, it isn't meant to be something theoretical. So when we say, you know, certain that our path is connected with our heart, heart really means what feels at the center. So this moment is at the center. You know, where we feel at times released 
and where we feel at times bound up, that's the heart. We must make certain that our path is connected with our heart. Many other visions are offered to us in the modern spiritual marketplace. Great spiritual traditions offer stories of enlightenment, bliss, knowledge, divine ecstasy, and the highest possibilities of the human spirit. Out of the broad range of teachings available to us in the West, often we are at first attracted to these glamorous and most extraordinary aspects. While the promise of obtaining such states can come true, and while these states do represent the teachings in one sense, they are also one of the advertising techniques of the spiritual trade. They are not the goal of spiritual life. In the end, spiritual life is not a process of seeking or gaining some extraordinary condition or special powers. In fact, such seeking can take us away from ourselves if we are not careful. We can easily find the great failures of our modern society, its ambition, materialism, and individual isolation repeated in our spiritual life. In beginning a genuine spiritual journey, we have to stay much closer to home, to focus directly on what is right here in front of us, to make sure that our path is connected with our deepest love. It goes on, it talks about how we have to learn to talk to the heart. I mean, this may sound silly, but the truth is, of course, sad but true, the truth is we're talking all the time, <laughs> seemingly to ourselves. So as long as we're having this kind of neurotic conversation, you know, why not make it a little bit more um, clear and sincere and about what's actually relevant? You know, instead of having an inner dialogue about all sorts of things that if we were clear and awake to, we would never have that conversation. That happens because we're not quite aware of what's going on in the mind. One of those conversations that Jack Cornfield recommends in this opening chapter is, you know, to reflect on our death as a skillful means. You know, we reflect, and this is often true in the Buddhist tradition, we use the thought of death to help clarify our life. It's not like thinking about death for its own sake. It's thinking about death to clarify what's actually important, which is this, this life, this heart, the way it is now. You know, and there's different ways to think about death. In one particular way, you know, imagining our death in a year, in 10 years, in 40 years, whatever it might be. And there on our deathbed, knowing that we're dying, and looking back on our life, the decades, the ups and downs, what event, what few events, few experiences will stand out, will be 
a meaningful or protecting, supporting, clarifying at that time. You see how this could be useful in better understanding how to live? You know, using the thought of death, the unavoidable truth of death, this body, this mind, this great whatever it is, transition, ending, you know. We don't really know what it is, do we? But we do know it's going to happen, and we do know that we don't know when it's going to happen. And so what will be meaningful? What does that reflection bring up for us? You know, as Jack Kornfeld suggests, will it be, re- uh, will it like shine at that moment? Will it shine like, I'm so glad I, I worked hard and saved up all that money? <laughs> or something like that. You know, probably... That's not what's going to be shining in the mind at that time. So just holding that reflection for a few moments. as different memories come to mind, just holding the memory here in the heart, right in the center of things, and noticing the effect of remembering that particular action, that particular event. What's its effect being held in the mind, being remembered? Just give a few examples of what came to mind now and then earlier when I was reflecting on this this evening or late afternoon. And I remember uh, one particular time leaving my uncle's farm or ranch in Montana where my dad, same place my dad grew up, same farm or ranch where my dad grew up. And he was at the time a bachelor and... uh, you could tell I really loved kids. And uh, I remember after spending a week there, and we often went every other year or so, uh, I was just crying because I didn't want to leave my Uncle Fred. And uh, at first when this thought came up, like I was doing this reflection, like what would I remember? Why would I remember that? And then I realized, 
even though I was crying and I, my heart really was breaking, it was also a really beautiful feeling, you know, that like really loving somebody and feeling loved, I think. And, uh, and just uh, while we were there, you know, just so fully engaged, you know, with life, just, just uh, everything was so amazing, you know, being a city kid, being on the farm, you know, learning and experiencing things that were new, just the alive quality and the and just being held with so much love and loving back. And other thoughts that came to mind are, are moments like we've had tonight, just different moments of my life coming together in spiritual community. And it's similar in some ways of uh, just the tremendous warmth in this archetypal homecoming even though we may not know everybody, but there's something, I know it can be also scary in a way, but there's something healing about a group of people coming together in this kind of way, in this kind of place. So these sorts of memories, you know, we can learn how to hold them and distill them because it talks to us about how to live our life, what sort of values are important? What kind of values can we bring to our everyday moments? And this is what I'd like to work with this weekend. I guess we could call it, um, you know, getting wise about the causes for happiness. It's like we've had a lot of happy and unhappy moments, so why not distill the relevant principles from our happy and unhappy moments? Really understand, not like, oh, I've got to go back to this ranch in Montana, you know, and exhume my uncle's body and <laughs> in order to be happy. So it's not so much we have to recreate those moments, but we want to distill, like, what was going on in the mind? What was going on in the heart? What made it so real, so complete, so full, so beautiful, those moments? What's in the way now? You know, what's in the way of living, being that way now? Is there anything in the way? At the near the end of this chapter, maybe I'll read a little bit more. Jack Kornfield does some distillation of his own in terms of the kind of questions that can guide us. Questions that might come out of the reflection that we've, we've been doing about on our deathbed, what moments from our past will arise, might arise, and really support us and protect us in that great transition time. This is what Jack Kornfield says. In the stress and complexity of our lives, we may forget our deepest intentions, but when people come to the end of their life and look back, the questions that they most, ask, most often ask are not usually, 
how much is in my bank account, how many books did I write, what did I build, or the like. If you have the privilege of being with a person who is aware at the time of his or her death, you find the questions such a person asks are very simple. Did I love well? Did I live fully? Did I learn to let go? Just repeat those. Did I love well? Did I live fully? Did I learn to let go? And one thing to notice, as I've noticed, it's like how easy it is to misinterpret this sort of, this distillation where we're kind of getting clear about some important questions, maybe some important values. Isn't it amazing how easy it is to immediately start judging ourselves, or me, start judging myself? Or maybe I haven't loved well. Maybe I'm not living fully. Maybe I haven't learned to let go. Because thinking in that way is once again missing, right? Missing the point. He goes on and says, these simple questions go to the very center of spiritual life. When we, are, when we consider loving well and living fully, we can see the ways our attachments and fears have limited us, and we can see the many opportunities for our hearts to open. Have we let ourselves love the people around us, our family, our community, the earth upon which we live? And did we also learn to let go? Did we learn to live through the changes of life with grace, wisdom, and compassion? Have we learned to forgive and live from the spirit of the heart instead of the spirit of judgment? Letting go is a central theme in spiritual practice as we see the preciousness and brevity of life. When letting go is called for, if we have not learned to do so, we suffer greatly. And when we get to the end of our life, we may have what is called a crash course. Sooner or later, we have to learn to let go and allow the changing mystery of life to move through us without our fearing it, without holding and grasping. <clears throat> so you probably see where this is going, just in terms of our own retreat, you know, each moment. So we can go back, like I mentioned earlier, we can go back to that question, you know, or not that question rather, but that that archetypal feeling, I guess we'd say, I care about this life. And then bring up our own distillation or we can connect our own reflection with what Jack Hornfield has said. You know, instead of, did I love well, we can ask the question right now, you know, how might I love well now? What might that look like, loving well? What might that look like now, eating my lunch or being cold, sitting in a meditation hall, feeling alone? How would loving well look like? Or what would loving well look like? What would living fully look like, being on retreat? That wholeheartedness. 
what would learning to let go look like on retreat or being here or in this moment? So you see, it's not just about bringing the attention back to the breath or back to the legs. It's really understanding that that coming back is part of a a bigger, more authentic, more real concern, which is, you know, I think there's happiness somewhere at hand. So when we come back to the body, the breath, the present moment, it's really related to this this intuitive sense of freedom, real happiness, not some sort of temporary or superficial, but a real sense of the heart's release, a fullness of the heart, that that's, that is here and now, somewhere around some mysterious corner. We're just waiting to be opened up, waiting to be discovered. And maybe the, the last uh, point I'll make, and I'll, I'll come back to this tomorrow night, of course, is, uh, you know, as we come back to this reflection of, you know, connecting with the wish to be happy and sort of understanding these deeper values or the distillation of what is actually meaningful, maybe going back to that reflection about being on the deathbed and what might arise as having been very meaningful in your life. And maybe being surprised by how simple it is. The moment may not be, you know, the big moment of when you fell in love or when your child was born. Or It might be something really simple. Just a feeling of being whole. A feeling of belonging. A feeling of not being neurotic. You know, no fear, no greed a simple contentment. I mean, how many of us can remember moments of childhood, you know, where you're just sitting in the sandbox, really content. When I was preparing this before dinner tonight in my room here, I was just feeling so much contentment. It was just so nice to know that I have, we have these three, four days you know, just to be together. And, you know, please don't turn the schedule, the retreat schedule, or the sort of format. You know, it would be so terribly ironic to turn the schedule and the form of the retreat into some uh, problem. Because <laughs> it's precisely designed not to be a problem, so that we don't have any excuses keeping us from this deeper reflection. Is happiness available? Do I want to be happy? Yes. Is it available? Not to have a quick answer, but like use that question to open up the moment. No. Where is it? Where is happiness? Where is release? What's in the way? And to, to use our history, you know, this is, this is where history can be useful, like 
What made that moment so full and complete? What allowed the heart to be so released, so free in that moment? What were the supporting causes and conditions? Are there similar supporting causes and conditions here in this moment? And so this is the last point I want to make. What we get, the more we do this kind of reflection, is we get it's all about what we pay attention to and how we pay attention to it. See, it's so easy to think that when I'm sitting, I should pay attention to how my tailbone hurts. It always hurts when I'm sitting. I've got a skinny butt, and just maybe the way my spine or body is structured, you know, I get a lot of pressure on my tailbone. I can always pay attention to it, and then it will always irritate me, the pain, you know, because pain generally, if we're not really mindful, disturbs the mind. Or I could pay attention to, oh, I've got to come up with three talks, you know. So we can always pay attention to things that disturb the mind, whatever it might be. That person seems so much more still than me. So we can always, as we're as we sort of start to value happiness and the possibility of happiness now, then the way we, in a sense, operationalize it is we remember it's all about how we're paying attention and what we're paying attention to. What arises for us is dependent on what we're paying attention to and how we're paying attention, the kind of values we bring to that pain attention, the attitude behind the pain attention. Both are important. So that could get very interesting over the next three and a half days. Just to notice what you're paying attention to and why your mind keeps going there and what other options are there. We could walk outside and we could notice that it's cold and then we could notice our thoughts about winter coming and having to shovel and, you know, whatever else. Or we could notice the moon and what a mystery that is. Or we could notice, you know, the silence or the sounds of, you know, whatever you can hear these days. So notice where your mind goes and notice notice with what attitude. Tomorrow night, I'll talk about the three wholesome roots. I think a a recent retreat here, we talked about the three unwholesome roots. Wholesome wholesome roots are just the opposite, of course. So this is just gives us a, a hint as we're noticing what we're paying attention to. It's really useful to pay attention to the three wholesome roots. By definition... These are the intentions in the mind, the qualities of the mind that lead to happiness. So, you know, non-greed means noticing contentment. So we could be noticing what we don't like about this room, or we could be noticing what's good about this moment here, together. You know, we could... Uh, be identified, noticing and identified with our impatience, with any rough roughness, any fear, or we could be noticing and uh, kind of 
orienting around gentleness and patience and kindness and the third of the wholesome roots is non-delusion so just an authenticity a simple clarity or directness a commitment to honesty and truthfulness these things make us happy like being truthful makes us happy being content and generous makes us happy my way out of town, I gave away my last power bar. When and I, my wife and I, have been buying, you know, big packages of power bars every once in a while, keeping them in our car, because we've been trying to somehow respond in a way that makes us happy when we run into people asking for money at the different stop signs or stoplights. And this seems to be working for me. It really makes me happy to be able to reach into my glove compartment and hand somebody something that I think is good for them and that might actually they might actually like and not have to sort of have all these complicated thoughts about whether this person is going to buy alcohol or use drugs and what am I doing by giving them money and or feeling stingy or being averse to the confusion of not knowing what's right. And now, you know, you hand it it gives me kind of allows me to have this sort of moment of connection however simple it is and I feel good just a simple example so our work this weekend again just to be really feel empowered around happiness feel empowered that we actually wish to be happy feel empowered that we intuit to whatever degree that it's it's within our reach it's not like uh, we're screwed you know we've lost missed our opportunity but the causes for happiness are present because we've been surprised by happiness before we can you know through recalling realize that happiness isn't about the particular conditions or it's not about the particular conditions we think it's about often and maybe at the end of the retreat we'll be feel a little bit more empowered have a little bit more faith in this uh, being independent in the sense of like oh getting the lay of the land of the spiritual life. It's about desiring happiness and having enough wisdom, enough clarity to look for it here and now, to have enough faith that it's available to actually look for it here and now, see what's in the way. And we can just have a sense of all the all of our friends here on retreat with us you know different moments you know there's probably a reasonable percentage of the people that are discovering happiness here and now you know and that could be a cause for happiness we won't really know you know by someone's sometimes you can you get a sense that you know but just have a sense that 
people are discovering happiness all the time. This is not a rare thing where people feel happy. But it doesn't fit our idea of life, you know? So we tend not to highlight the happiness because, you know, we haven't solved our problem in terms of the conditioned world. Like we haven't gotten rid of death, we haven't gotten rid of poverty, old age, taxes, (laughs) or whatever else, you know. So we mistrust the simple happiness of contentment, the simple happiness of peace, of a fullness of heart, love, kindness. We keep sort of uh, disrespecting that, thinking, oh, but there's this. So hopefully we'll turn that corner a little bit this weekend, or maybe a lot. I'll leave it here. Maybe just stretch our legs. Uh, let's stay in the room, though. And then we'll do the precepts, the refuges and precepts, and then sit for a few minutes before we end for the evening. So feel free to stand up if you'd like to release any tension in your legs. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.